Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Today's story is about Dyatlov Pass, and it was actually recommended to us from a review from Hey to the Cow. So thank you so much for leaving the review and giving us an interesting story to research. Also, if you enjoy the podcast, we would love if you would leave us a review. It helps other people find us. So we're trying to grow, and that's a big help. Also, if you have any show ideas for us, feel free to send them our way. All of our social media handles are on our outro, so you can hit us up. So Dyatlov Pass is such an interesting story because of how the people were found. Just to give you a brief rundown before we deep dive into it, there was a group of nine people on a very, very cold mountain, and they never came home. And the reason they never came home is because they unfortunately died. Now, what's strange about it is the way that they were found. They weren't in their nice, cozy tent. They were strewn about the mountain in various fashions and also not wearing any protective gear on their feet, nor the proper clothing. So with that information being out there, a lot of people had their own theories as to what might have happened. And these theories are, some of them are crazy, some of them make sense. And it's just kind of fun to research what people thought might have happened to these people, because it's still, I would say, unknown. What do you think? There's an official opinion on what happened, but I don't think a lot of people, myself included, accept that. And you'll get into why. And don't worry, I'll repeat it again, why I don't believe it. (laughs) And with that, let's begin our expedition to the Ditloff Pass. So the first four bodies were identified on February 27th, 1959. Their tent was about 300 meters from the top of the mountain. One of the volunteers from the university who had gone to go look for the missing students, him and another rescuer actually saw part of the tent poking out from under the snow. The tent was on a hillside pass, and it actually ended up becoming the name of the group leader, Dyatlov. It was at a 15 degree incline. It was on horizontal grounds. And another weird fact is the tent was cut from the inside. Hmm. So when they left their tent that night, they didn't come out of it in a you know normal fashion. It was actually cut open from the inside. It was partially torn down and there was about two to four feet of snow on top of it when it was found. There are tons of pictures relating to the expedition and one of the pictures that was taken is of the tent covered in snow and we'll put that up on our instagram so you can see what it looked like with the snow and what the tent looked like when it was set up because the folks who were found they had also taken photos so there's a lot available so when they had found the tent they also noticed that there were frozen footprints The tracks were pretty well preserved in the snow, and it looked like some were barefoot, and one even might have been wearing only a sock. There were some boot prints, but again, it wasn't in pairs. It was just kind of random. Yeah. They all started kind of close together, all of the tracks, and then they slowly drifted apart. What I thought was interesting, too, was, okay, so we're reading about this, and they're talking about footprints, and they're talking about a tent that's under two to four feet of snow. And I was like, how the heck would you see these footprints if there had been so much snow? And because we'll get into dates later, but it wasn't as though they found them like three days later. It was a few weeks, so there had been some time elapsed. So I thought it was really strange that they were able to see footprints in the snow, but then I saw that the footprints were frozen. Right, right. So what I'm thinking is like, 
when they were walking barefoot, I'm thinking some of the heat from their bodies melted the snow a little bit. And then as it refroze, it kind of left that imprint. That would make sense. But I don't know the science behind that. Footprint science. (laughs) Do you think that they have forensic podiatrists? Like, is that a job? Absolutely. Like the most rock and roll of podiatrists. (laughs) I know what to aspire to now. Uh, If anyone is a podiatrist, please feel free to take that name and become the rock star podiatrist. You can only wear black scrubs. For sure. Yeah, it's a vibe. So we, we mentioned that the tent was cut open from the inside. And for the most part, all of their belongings, including the valuables they'd brought, like money, were in the tent still. Right. So that kind of clears the they were robbed theory in any fashion. Yeah. And then most of the clothes and shoes that they probably should have been wearing if they were outside the tent were still in the tent. And for some folks, the clothing that they had on or around them wasn't their own. It was almost kind of like people grab stuff as they were heading out. There was also a ski pole inside the tent that had been shortened with a knife. And that's particularly strange because they didn't have any extra ski poles with them. In a few minutes, we'll talk about how far they were traveling and how long they had to do it. But they certainly weren't carrying extra tools like that because that would have been a hard thing to carry. Yeah, like it wouldn't have missed. You couldn't have like shoved that in a pack. So also the cut in the tent was on the side where they rested their heads. So think like near where like your pillow would be. And then they kind of like scooted through that. Right. And what it showed is that they were in a, a hurry yeah. for whatever reason to get out of their tent. And that's kind of what the fascination stems around. Like what made them leave their tent so fast where they didn't even grab shoes? Yeah. And from what I read, their tent also had buttons. So it didn't have like a a zipper, like a lot of tents that you'd see today. It had buttons. So it would have been a little bit harder, you know, to get out in a hurry. Yeah. Well, also, so when investigators did go to the scene, they didn't see any sign of a struggle or that anybody who wasn't a part of the expedition was present. And so, as Amanda mentioned, they found the first four bodies on February 27th of 1959. Then they found the fifth body on March 5th. And then they found the remaining four bodies on May 5th. The original four bodies were found near the tent and near a tree. And the fifth body was also found between the tree and the tent. And the other four bodies were found near a ravine in a small stream. So the folks who were near the trees, it looked like they had had a fire and they were laying next to one another. And it also looked like one of them had tried to climb the tree and had fallen. I also saw where they may have been like jumping on the lower branches for kindling. Yeah, they were trying to get either some branches for the fire, possibly. Uh, Some theories say that one might have climbed the tree so that he could see where the tent was, like to get the higher vantage point. That makes sense. That makes sense. There's a number of reasons that he could have climbed that tree. Yeah. So I think a really important factor to think, keep in mind when we're thinking about why are there so many theories and why are people so fascinated by this is to think about where they were and what that time was like. Mm-hmm. So the incident happened in 1959 in what is now Russia. But at the time, it was the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, also the USSR. So I feel like whenever I hear the USSR, I don't think a lot of pleasant things, <laughs> right? Because I was like, right? I was like, I'm like, oh, man, high school history. So looked a little bit about like what that was about because I was like, I don't remember too much. Right. And on top of that, another 
piece of information that made it so interesting to so many people is a lot of the details about what happened was not released to the public for a long time. Yeah, it wasn't until the 90s. Yeah. And then in addition to that, the area where this happened was actually closed off for some time as well. So people couldn't even go and like explore on their own. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to back up a little bit just to really set the stage for the secrets of the USSR and the fact that they were a little sketchy, a little shady. They weren't sharing a lot. Right. Not trustworthy. Yeah, definitely not trustworthy. So let's back up to the early 20th century where Stalin, who's leading the USSR, decides to consolidate individually owned farms and turns them into these state farm centers. Right. And they're thinking this is going to make growing food easier, more productive faster, it's going to be great. Rather than that, what happens is it doesn't turn out that well. So it doesn't end up being more productive. It ended up being less productive, which results in the Great Famine, which was from 1932 to 1933. Millions of people died from starvation. It's sad. Yeah, it's in- it's incredibly sad. And that's also a- that's a lot of people. And the USSR denied its existence. Sound familiar? Yeah, like so there was a problem. And then the USSR was like, no, 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 it's not a problem. It's fine. Everything's fine. You're fine. Very familiar. So mm-hmm. also familiar. Stalin was uh, he wanted to keep a stronghold on his power. So kind of did all that he could to stay in power. And the way that he did that was he had secret police and they would basically kind of I think they you would cease to exist if you were a threat to Stalin's power. Additionally, between 1936 and 1938, over 600,000 Soviet citizens were executed in what was called the Great Purge. That's horrific. Yeah. Like when I say it, it makes me feel like queasy because it's such a a giant amount of people. Yeah. And so in addition to that 600,000, millions more were deported or were sent to the gulags, which were forced labor camps. So then there was like a tenuous alliance between the U.S. and the USSR during World War II. But the farther out we got from that, the less the U.S. and the USSR were kind of cozy because the U.S. generally is a little bit fussy about communists. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So and also specifically the USSR continued to install communist ish governments in Eastern Europe. So it made the U.S. more and more uncomfortable. In response to that, in 1949, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, is formed. And it's kind of like a puffing of the chest, if you will, to kind of show force against the USSR and their allies. So in 1953, Stalin dies. Great. And Nikita Khrushchev comes to power. In 1955, the USSR consolidated power within those Eastern European countries that were their allies under the Warsaw Pact. And that begins the Cold War. And so during this time, there's a lot of secrecy and things aren't great. And Khrushchev just, I thought this was interesting. One of the things that he did was he worked to de-Stalinize the Soviet society to make it less repressive. But Stalin had only died in 1953. So there wasn't too much change, I would imagine, between then and 1959. And even if there had been a lot of change, the people who lived in the USSR were still living with like having grown up for the most part, right? Like in that repressive kind of society where the government keeps secrets or it could hurt you or it could just kill you and leave you there. And people would just wonder what happened. 
It didn't seem too far-fetched that perhaps the government had something to do with this. And this really reminds me of our Black Forest episode when we talk about government conspiracies and we're like, okay, but the CIA was testing on people. So it wasn't completely crazy that Stephen Lee thought that maybe they were doing that to him because that was in the news when he was a young adult. Exactly. So a lot of the people looking in on this and knowing that a bunch of people were found dead in this mountain pass and then they're not allowed to go there, it made them question the reasoning. Was it a natural death or did something crazy happen. It's suspicious. Mm -hmm, For sure. So let's review the reason why they were there and who was in their party. So the reason they were all out there is they were trying to get their grade three skiing certification. And the leader of the group was Igor Dyatlov. He was the most experienced. He was a radio engineering student. And kind of a sad fact is his mother at the time had begged him not to go. And per his sister, she never forgave herself for letting him go. Oh, man. Which is heartbreaking. Yeah. And I want to say it was between like semesters, too. So he was just like trying to ease her into it. Like, it's okay. We'll be back before the next semester. Yeah. And then he never came back. Well, I also like, could you imagine like having that gut feeling and being like, no, don't go. And then you're like, no, no, it's fine. I'm just being dramatic. Like, it's fine. And then bam. Right, right. So all of the people that were in this party, too, were very experienced in this sort of thing. They had gone on many expeditions before. A lot of them have traveled together before. And so I'm sure, you know, he's like, oh, it's just the same people. We came back last time. Well, at least she didn't make him some soap before he went. Yeah. I mean, or maybe she should have. Yeah. Or it was the tea cakes that she needed to make. <laughs> Gross. Gross. It makes me feel nauseous just thinking about it. Anywho. So another one of the folks in the party was Zinaida Kolmogorva. And she was a 22-year-old radio engineering student. And she had written to her family during the, like, before they had really, like, started the expedition on their way up the mountain. And a few of them had done that. That was one of the reasons also that they knew something was wrong because they didn't send the telegram they were supposed to when they, you know, finished. She was known to be outgoing and energetic. And so I saw like a few cute kind of anecdotes about her that I thought were just interesting. So she had burned Yuri's jacket and her own mittens in the campfire, like during the beginning of the expedition, which of all places to like burn warm clothing, that's probably not the place. Another interesting fact was Zinaido was dating Yuri Duryshenka, but they had broken up. And this was one of the first times they were going to like spend a significant amount of time together since the breakup. And she was kind of nervous. Also, the most of the group had traveled together before. On a previous expedition, Zinaida had fallen for Yuri when he chased off a brown bear with a hammer. That's such a random story. How do you not love a man who chases off a bear? How dangerous, too. <laughs> And just as far as like her mittens go too, when you're saying that she burned the mittens, Mm -hmm. just to paint a picture about how cold it was on that mountain. I know I said cold, but I meant cold, cold. So it ranged on the average night during their trip in February of 1959 to negative 13 to negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit. However, the night that they died, there are reports that say it was between about negative 30 degrees to possibly negative 40 degrees. Absolutely not. I would not voluntarily avail myself to that. Nothing. Nothing could ever get me to go near that temperature. No, no. Especially for, I understand it was a little more exciting, you know, for the the grade three skiing certification. But in my head, and I know it's downplaying it, all I think of is like a, like a Boy Scout badge. I went Girl Scout sash because I was raised in Girl Scouts. And I was like, ah, a nice, I'm thinking like it's a circle... It's got like the embroidered little mountain and you're a little speck going up the mountain. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) 
Uh, that's all I think of. It's just like, they get this. thank you for finishing this trip. Here's your badge. Go ahead and iron it on when you get home. <laughs> Not even sew it. It's like an iron-on one. And nothing, nothing could get me to go near that temperature ever. Like, no amount of money, nothing. No. I can't even walk in snow, let alone, like, live in it for a while. And to be out there, and when you, like, you can find a lot of the pictures from their trip that they actually took. Uh, there's a whole website dedicated to it called theatlovepass.com. When people have icy eyelashes, that that's just like an auto no. I can't do it. It's a hard no. It's a hard no for me. For sure. And then she fucking burned her mittens. Cold ass hands. Cold ass hands. <laughs> Not okay. Not okay. So uh, along the trip too was then her ex, Yuri Doroshenko. He was 21 and he worked in power economics. There was also Alexander Kolyvetov. He was 24 and he was studying nuclear physics. There's also some reports that he was working at a secret institute in Moscow. I couldn't find much on that. It's a secret. Secret, secret. I've got a secret. There's another Yuri on this trip as well. And that was Yuri Krivonyshenko. And he was 23 years old, an engineering student, and a couple little facts about him. He loved telling jokes and he played the mandolin. And I want to think that from what we had seen, so their journals are available and they had talked about that they had been singing and he had been playing his mandolin at the start of their trip before the expedition had begun. There was also Rustam Slobodin and he was a 23 year old engineering student and a long distance runner and he was known to be shy. And then Nicholas Thebo Brignall and he was 23 years old and he was also an engineering student. The only other girl that was on the trip was Lamila Davinina. She was 20 years old and studying economics. And she was also a part of the Young Communists. And she was known for being relatively like somber and stern. And the last one was Simeon Zolarov. And he worked at a tourist camp and was also in World War II. He was the oldest of the group and he was 37 at the time. He joined the group at the last moment, which also sparked a lot of theories because he was new to the group. He knew some of the people, but it, again, it was still like very early on in their friendship. It was unclear why he went on this trip with them, because like we said before, a lot of them had traveled together before, but this was the first time that he traveled with them. And kind of a weird thing, he faked his name at first and presented himself as Alexander. Hmm. Right? Little shifty. And then when I said he was in World War II, some people believe that he might have been a USSR spy and that he may have dealt with Nazi collaborators who were forced to divulge secrets. Hmm. So after the war, something that people said about him is that he was relatively nomadic and he would move around and change jobs pretty frequently, which is a little weird. So this guy, very strange. Yeah. And folks would say that it, it kind of almost looked like he was running from something because each time he would move and get a new job, it would be very like geographically distant from like the previous place he had been. So he just kept moving along. So they also they had a 10th member of their party. And his name was Yuri Yurden. However, on the first day, he started having leg pain. So he decided to go back. So he was their 10th and he's the only survivor because he didn't go. Right. Which is so sad. Like, I can't imagine being him where he was supposed to be with these people. And then, you know, having to turn around for something happening to you. Yeah. Thinking you'll see your friends again and then never being able to see them again. Yeah. It's just so sad. I saw that he, when he had passed, he asked to be buried with his friends. And that 
It's just so heartbreaking and sweet because, I mean, I would imagine that they had an incredibly close bond because, like, think about your friends. Great. Love them. But I haven't been with anybody when they were attacked by a bear or had, like, those type of experiences with someone. And, like, we're going to get into, like, how intense this trip was. But, like, these were very rigorous ski trips. So they were with each other for long periods of time in kind of like, I don't want to say harrowing circumstances, but like dangerous circumstances. So they probably had a very, very close connection. So for him to have lost all of those people at once, very sad. Right. You had to have a very trustworthy like relationship with them. Yeah, exactly. Because you could die. And that's one of the reasons why it was so strange that Semyon got to go with them. They all had the trips necessary to successfully complete the trip. And they were all in good physical and mental health. At that time, the route was considered one of the most difficult. Another thing that seemed strange to me, because how would they know that Semyon had the skills necessary and that they weren't going to be like losing some guy in the mountains? The trip that they were taking was... (laughs) 350 kilometers in the Ural Mountains in a span of 16 days. And we're in America, so we have miles. So 350 kilometers is 217.48 miles. And as Amanda mentioned, they had planned to be back before their spring semester. So they were on like a time crunch. So in addition to like running out of supplies, they also had a time deadline that was like, right, we have places to be. Yeah. Would you do anything for 217 miles? Because I wouldn't. Absolutely. (laughs) No, 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 no. Nothing but respect for their like incredible prowess. So most of the area that they were hiking and skiing through was uninhabited, but there were parts nearby that were inhabited by an indigenous people called the Manzies. Originally, during the start of the trip, the group had caught a ride with some lumberjacks and left from an abandoned village on January 28th. As we mentioned on the first day, Yuri Yurden went back and their diaries reflect that they have been moving along like a steady pace and making good time from January 28th to February 1st. Now, on February 1st, the hikers only went about one and a quarter miles, which is two kilometers, before setting up camp, which is a little bit strange considering they were moving so far. Yeah. And so some say it's like particularly strange because the hill pass that they had set their camp up on was kind of uncomfortable and wasn't like the most habitable place for a tent. And they would have had to leave the woods to put it there, which is a little strange. And the official crime investigator called this Ditlov's mistake. Right. And then on the other hand, though, there might have been a reason. Yeah, there could have been something that happened that triggered that they had to stop right then, even though, well, we don't know this. But what if someone got hurt and they're like, okay, we just need to make up camp. Yeah, let's help them out. A storm, an animal, who knows what happened. In just a few moments, we're going to get into the specific injuries that each of them sustained. But I don't think that they would have been able to tell if it happened 15 hours before their death versus 20 hours. So like you said, like, It could have been that like someone fell, someone cut something or maybe the weather started to get really bad and that's why they stopped. Yeah. And their tent occasionally needed repairs during their trip, too. So they could have possibly saw either a storm or something happening and they're like, you know what? We have to repair this anyways. Let's just stop. Get this done. I don't know. My guess. Yeah. It felt like they would have had to have a good reason, though, because they were experienced hiker skiers. So based on a photo of them that was found on one of their cameras, it looks like they started setting up the tent around 5 p.m. And that particular photo was one of the last ones that was taken. Right. It's kind of haunting. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the search party, they were launched on February 20th, 1959. And the reason why it was a little while after uh, is because a lot of people thought, hey, they're just running a little late. 
yeah. you know, with sending the telegram. It was pretty common to be sometimes a couple days late on a route like that. So that's why it took a bit. So what they did is they organized rescue groups. Eventually, the army and police forces also joined the rescue group so that they'd be able to search a larger area. And so the scene, finding the actual bodies. Here's another list of kind of strange things that happened. When they found the bodies, all of them had brick covered to purple discoloration on their hands and their feet, which at first you would think maybe that's what happens when you go through hypothermia. But that isn't always the case. Yeah, I looked at the CDC's website on hypothermia and they talk about how your skin gets paler, not darker. Which I guess I would have also assumed that it gets like darker because if you think of like a windburn and the feeling of being a frostbite I'm, from everything that I've looked at is it kind of is like a burning numbness. So I would assume like it would turn like a reddish or darker color with like orange or purple, but it actually gets pale. And then frostbite will leave like a grayish kind of mark on you. And it looks like they ate about six to eight hours before they were found. And they also did not consume alcohol, which is an important detail because many people believed that they might have been like partying that night and just made stupid choices. And they for sure did not do that. I also saw where maybe they had had bad alcohol and that maybe it wasn't that they had like partied. It was that they drank it in moderation, but it was like poisoned or bad in some way. That's strange. Well, they were carrying alcohol on them, but it was only as like a medical kit in case of injury. Yeah, it was just like a tiny metal flask. So Dyatlov was actually found with the first group. So on February 27th, that's when the first four bodies were found. He was lying on his back with his head towards the tent and his hands were holding a trunk of a small tree. A note that I found a little interesting was his watch time stopped at 531. Hmm. And when I was looking at like the Dyatlov website, there's like an article that they were trying to review like when the watch will stop after someone's died in very cold temperatures like this. And I wasn't able to see like an exact time, you know, after they die. But I guess because you have no body heat, it eventually the insides, I believe, freeze too. And then it just stops telling time. So a lot of them were wearing watches, but they're all at different times. Woof. He was wearing one wool and one cotton sock. He had abrasions on his forehead, both of his cheeks, the underside of his right forearm, both knees, both ankles, and there were hemorrhages into the underlying soft tissue on his ankles. He was also missing a tooth and had blood on his lips. In addition to all of that, he also had a couple cuts, one on his right shin and on his left palm from his pointer finger to his pinky. He had very bad frostbite on his fingers, which clearly that that would have happened. And then he died as a result of hyperthermia. Some of his internal organs were taken from his corpse for histological examination. It appears some of his injuries might have been from a blunt instrument, but it also could have been from falling on stones or possibly the ice. And some of his injuries were noted to be done post-mortem. Hmm. So the first five bodies that were found were found in an interesting kind of grouping. So in the first four that were found, there were two near the cedar tree. And then there were two more that were basically in kind of crawling positions between the tree and the tent. And so they're in a row. And so Ditloff was closest to the tree. And the person who was closest to the tent was Zinaida Komogorva. And she was face down, but again, positioned like she was crawling towards the tent. She had abrasions on the tip of her nose, her cheeks, her chin. And she also had a bright red bruise on her side. One of the descriptions I saw said it looked like a baton, but I'm like a baton, a branch, like 
a long kind of spherical thing. Yeah. She also had a, what was described as an irregular wound on the back of her hand. And a lot of the information that we have about their wounds are from their autopsies because the Russian government has released the case files. And so I, we were able to find translated versions. And so, Amanda, are you ready to be uncomfortable? Ugh, I don't know about this. <laughs> this part of, their, of her autopsy always makes me cringe. Yeah, it's bad. It's really bad. So in Zenaida's autopsy, they discussed the size of her breasts and the color of her nipples. This was not included in the men's autopsies. Like they weren't talking about like they said like things like the genitals were like fully well formed. Okay, sure. Like whatever. That's like a a statement. It's not like, for example, the breasts are of medium size. The nipples protrude above the breast surface. The nipples and the areola are pale gray. The abdomen is located at the level of the chest. The external genital organs are formed correctly. Their mucous membrane is bluish pink. The hymen is annular in shape. It's free edge fringed. The natural oming of the hymen passes the tip of the little finger of an adult. There's no discharge from the vagina. Did anyone inform them that that is not a unit of measurement in the medical field? I would hope so. Tip of the tip of the finger. Fuck off. Like disgusting. Disgusting. Also, they did in like the la- in the conclusion portion of the autopsy, it says the virginity of Komogorva was preserved. As though that mattered. There was no thought that she there, there wasn't any signs of sexual trauma and there was no reason to think that she had been sexually assaulted. So the idea of why they had to talk about her virginity or fondle her corpse, I don't know. I don't get the medical need for that in in this type of autopsy. Like you said, if it was sexual assault or maybe they thought something happened that shouldn't have happened in that sense, sure, I get it. But when a lot of them died of hyperthermia, I don't see it. That was her cause of death as well. And so she also had third and fourth degree frostbite in her fingers. And it was noted in her autopsy that a lot of her abrasions looked like they had been from falling on snow and ice. So it wasn't as though she had other injuries that showed she had struggled. Do you know what I mean? With another person. It was just like she struggled with nature. Right. It makes me endlessly angry. It should. It's just it's not professional. I don't know how autopsies or what was normal for autopsies in Russia in the 50s, but this just seems a little not medical, you know, unprofessional. It seems deeply disrespectful. And I don't want to say that because I always say that in like in a funny way, but it's I find that deeply disturbing that like what was done to her body after she died. Right. And for the guys, too, they didn't say a lot of that in detail. Yeah. Just the women. Ugh. So the next one that was also found on February 27th was Yuri Doroshenko, and he was found partially clothed. However, some of the clothing was scattered kind of around him. All of the clothing had cuts. He was found next to the remains of the fire. So remember, there was a fire at one point kind of in the tree area, but he was found pretty close to it. He had burns on his head and on his foot, and he also had dried blood on his face. He had clotted blood on the tip of his nose, bridge, and under his lip. He had a gray substance on his cheeks as well. And I was trying to figure out what would cause this gray substance under these conditions. And I couldn't find anything that would be gray. I found various other colors that he could have possibly like thrown up or, you know, it came out of his nose or whatever. I think it was the frostbite. Yeah, I'm wondering if maybe it just changes colors too. So maybe. There's also hemorrhages on his upper lip. And then he had a bunch of abrasions, some on like the inner surface of his right shoulder. He had a striped pattern on the front of his shoulder. So like something maybe grazed him. The back of his hand, elbows, forearm. And also his cause of death was hypothermia. So 
Yuri Krivoshenko was also found near the tree, and he too was found partially clothed with some of his clothing nearby. And also, all of his clothing had cuts in it. And his knife was found near their bodies, which I thought was interesting. Like maybe he was using that to like cut kindling off the tree too, or something like that. He was found lying on his back and just an interesting note. So in all of the autopsies, they describe what they're wearing. And in the description of his clothes, it says that on the inside of his shirt, there was a white pocket sewn onto it and his shirt wasn't white. So it was almost like an extra pocket was sewn in and like just like tuck that away for later because, well, there's a reason why I found that so fascinating. But an extra little inside sneaky pocket. It didn't have to be for a super weird reason, too. It could have been that's where he kept something that he had strong feelings. Yeah. You know, or like a picture or something like that. That I don't know. A lot of people do weird things. They also were traveling with money. So, I mean, like it wouldn't be altogether abnormal if he was like, I want to keep this tucked against my body because like you could lose a pack. You could lose this. You could lose that. But he wants to have that. But interesting when you pair it with something we'll talk about in a bit. Yes. So he also had burns. So he had second and third degree burns. So his middle left finger was burned. And then on his left leg, basically like his whole leg was burned. And it was the worst of it was in the lower third of his leg. And then it got like less burned the further up you went. But on the lower third of his leg, there was an area with the worst burns. And that was 31 centimeters by 10 centimeters, which is pretty big. He had also burned the second toe on his left foot, which I thought it was interesting how he burned just that one. He also, you ready? He had bitten off a piece of his own knuckle and it was in his mouth. I'm wondering if maybe he did that to try to stay awake because they know once you fall asleep, you're probably not waking up after like pain. Yeah. I also wondered if it was from the burns, like if he was like biting his hand, like to not just as a way of handling it. He also had a wound on the palm of his right hand. And then interestingly, he had three skin wounds on the inner surface of his upper left thigh and they had like smooth edges, but they had sharp angles. Hmm. It's hard for me to picture that, but it sounded really strange. Ice maybe? Yeah. So we're going to talk about head injuries a few times. And so gather around as I give you a tour of your own head by a person who's not a doctor. So if you have your hand and say, put it in your jaw mm-hmm. and then you kind of go up, right? Like not quite to your temples, but like a little back, kind of like, I don't know, maybe an inch from your ear. That's a temporal bone. I'm looking at like a diagram. So on his temporal bone, there were two abrasions. One was 1.2 centimeters by two centimeters and one was one centimeter by two centimeters. But like a strange place to like get at abrasions, right? It feels like a strange place. Yeah. So unless he fell. Yeah, but like think about like where that is. Like it's a specific place you'd have to hit to like get scratched there. And it feels like kind of like a softer spot on your head. I don't know. That's just me. I'm thinking because the the incline of the mountain, maybe like falling wouldn't be as. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not just like down. It's graceful. Yeah, I know. I'm graceful when I fall. Uh, so on, also on the lower third of his nose to the tip of his nose, there were abrasions as well as on the skin above his rib cage. There was a seven centimeter scratch. And then as well as on the back of his left leg, on the back of his left wrist and on his upper right thigh, there were four different abrasions. The autopsy described his fingers as, quote, dried up. Don't like it. Don't like it at all. What's that even mean? Don't even know. But also at the same time, the back of his right hand was swollen. So it's like 
an interesting mix. Yeah. So he had frostbite on his fingers and extremities as well. And it's noted that they think that his injuries were from a fall or a bruise, but he did also die of hypothermia. That's horrible. And I'm wondering too, with all their burns that both of them had being by the fire, that maybe they were trying their best to like stay warm, you know, where they were getting so close because it was so cold and maybe they were starting to lose feeling in their limbs. Ooh. And as they were losing feeling, they were like getting closer and closer to the fire trying to feel something again or like have it come back maybe. Yeah, I could also imagine if there were stones near the fire that like were heated up, like pressing their hands or like different parts of their body against it. Maybe. Or like maybe he was dying as the fire was still on. And so he wasn't feeling the burns because he was like shutting down. Yeah, possibly. And then Rustam Slobodin was found March 5th. So it was a little bit after the first round of bodies, but he was in roughly the same area. He was found face down. His body was positioned like he was crawling towards the tent. And he had felt insoles from his boots, but they were found between his shirt and his chest. So I think he was just trying to keep his chest warm, his heart. His watch showed 845. That's a pretty big difference between Dyatlov's. Yeah. He was wearing only one boot and he had a six centimeter long skull fracture. He had some abrasions as well. So center of his forehead that was kind of depressed. On the right side of his face, he also had some odd shaped abrasions over his chin. And then the left side of his face, there was also some minor abrasions as well and along his neck. His lips were swollen. He had third and fourth degree frostbite on his fingers and his upper extremities. He also died of hyperthermia. And then he had a fracture on the left frontal bone that was caused by a blunt instrument like ice or stone. And like Lindsay said, we're not doctors, but we'll try to walk you through it. The frontal bone is kind of like your forehead area, just a little higher, it looks like. Like above your eyebrow, but like, and like maybe like an inch or two past your hairline, says the diagram I'm looking at. I'm no doctor. <laughs> But I am wanting to go for my uh, parapsychology doctorate one day. Oh, yes, yes. They'll teach you head bones. Sure. Not skull bones. Head bones. <laughs> head bones. Head bones. Thank you, Dr. Lindsay. <laughs> they did note that while that fracture could have caused short-term stunning, it was not the cause of his death. And then he, too, had some abrasions that were caused post-mortem. So next, we're going to talk about the four people who were found in the ravine near the small stream, and they were all found on May 5th. So Nicholas Thibo Brignall, he had two watches on his left wrist. One said 8.14 and one said 8.39, and that's where they stopped, which I thought was really interesting. That's close. Yeah. Yeah, that's fairly close to Rustum's. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that, like, they're different times because, as Amanda mentioned earlier, like, there's ideas on, like, why the watches would freeze when they did. So I think it would be interesting if they didn't stop at the same time, right? Like, they didn't freeze at the same time-ish. Like, they're close, but they're not, like, three minutes apart. Right. But so, again... Let's have a little little tour of your face now. Okay, so put your hand on your upper left jaw. You feel like the like the bone there, like your cheekbone kind of, and then kind of feel down where your teeth meet the bone. Okay, so that bony ridge that holds the sockets of your teeth, you could see that on thibobrignol. And because there was like, I don't know why, but there was like a defect where you could like see the bone itself. Into his, into yeah, his, into his skull. Yeah, into of. his skull. And so in addition to that, there was a 10 by 12 centimeter greenish blue bruise on the lower part of his right shoulder blade. So Amanda mentioned earlier that for Titlov, they had taken some of his organs for a histological exam. But for Thibobrignol, they took some of his internal organs, but also some of his temporal parietal bone. 
Weird. For chemical and histological examination. It was thought that he died as a result of a multi-splintered depressed fracture on the base of his skull. And there was like bleeding from results of it. And they thought it was from a great fall, which I thought was interesting because, okay, so we said three bodies were crawling towards the tent, two near the tree, four in the ravine. Mm -hmm. I guess I would have imagined like that the person who had the greatest fall would be the person who fell from the tree. So I would, right? Right. That's just kind of like where I went. But I thought it was interesting that like this person was in the ravine. Yeah. And the next person that was also found on May 5th was Ludmila Dabanina. And she was also in the ravine area. Her leg was wrapped in Kravanashenko's wool pants, but she wasn't actually wearing them. Mm. Her pants were torn and they were burnt in some places, which maybe she went near the fire at one point. Or also something that I did read about their excursion is that Dyatlov brought an oven for the tent and it was like fashioned in a way where it's meant to be in the tent. And occasionally while they were in there, they would like dry their clothes near the oven. And sometimes it would be a little too close to the oven. For no reason in particular, I am imagining a hand crank easy bake oven. Don't know why. It was not that. It was was a little more hardcore than that. (laughs) They weren't cooking things with a light bulb. What do you mean? (laughs) I don't even think an easy bake would turn on in that weather. That's why it's a crank one. They just really crank it. I'm making crank motions with my hands. You're welcome. (laughs) And remember, like one of them even burned mittens at one point. So it could have been caused this night. It could have been prior to this night that some of these burned clothing took place. She had some fractures to her ribs. She had an extensive heart hemorrhage and the soft tissues of her eyebrows, bridge of her nose and eye sockets were missing. Nah, mm -mm. no, thank you. That includes let me let me just keep going. That includes her eyes being missing. Where'd they go? So that that has been a pretty big talk around this too. And that's kind of what got some interest in this story is that she not only didn't have her eyes, she also didn't have her tongue. How does that happen? Some people say an animal could have gotten it. Some people say bacteria from like decomposition a little bit because these bodies in the in the ravine were found later because the snow started melting. So they weren't as frozen as that's the first batch. And I will say too, just kind of a note to this. If you go to dyatlovpass.com, they have photos of where they found the bodies, how they found the bodies and what they actually look like. So please be careful if you open that up and you don't want to see it. Oh, yes. We're going to share some photos, but we're not sharing those. They're pretty graphic. No, no, no. Some of them are a little too much. But the best I can say is I did look at hers because I wanted to know, was her mouth open or was it closed at the time? You know, like that that her tongue might have been removed. Could it have been an animal or was her mouth completely closed? And from what I found, her mouth was open. So it, it definitely could have been an animal. No. See, here's my thing with that. Okay. If it was an animal, why just her? And also, when you're looking at like, think of your face, right? I would imagine that if it was a scavenger animal of some sort that was like picking off a corpse, why wouldn't they get the rest of the tissue in the face? Right. Like, why was it just like her eye area and her tongue? To me, I'm like, you would have seen similar things on the other people in the ravine. And you sort of did in one of them. Just one. 
But maybe it was just the way that she where she was. And we'll go over some theories later. But I don't know. It could have been a number of things. But this caused a lot of crazy theories to happen as to what might have happened to her. Like were her eyes removed before she died? Or was her tongue removed before she died? I don't think so. But there, there's some theories that include that. Now, of course, because she's a woman, they had the weird sexist autopsy practice of measuring things by finger length. So I won't go through that again. She died of an extensive hemorrhage and internal bleeding as a result of a rib fracture. The injury could have occurred as a result of a fall or exposure to great force. So something could have hit her really hard. She could have fell down something. That's also the way that it's described by the original investigator is like exposure to a great force because he was pressured to like have the case closed. So I think this is how he left it ambiguous. Exactly. Now, here's another big detail that caused a lot of talks. They later found radioactivity on her clothing. Oof, weird. So there was also Alexander Kolyvatov and the edges of his jacket were burned. So like Amanda mentioned, this could have been from their tent oven. It could have been from the fire. We're not sure. He also had a wound behind his ear and that wound is on his mastoid process. Let's do a head tour again, shall we? (laughs) Think behind your ear. Okay. But like a little lower where it's a little softer, but kind of like the base of your skull too. Mm Mm-hmm. Right there, there was a, quote, wound of indeterminate shape penetrating it. It was three by 1.5 by five centimeters. Strange. So he also had an oddly twisted neck. The bridge of his nose was straight, but the nose cartilage had, quote, unusual mobility. Was it broken? I'm thinking, but because I was like, this is, that's a weird way to describe that. But the base of his nose was flat and the nasal openings were compressed. So at the very least, like the lower part of his nose was broken. I'm not quite sure of the top. There was also what they described as a defect on his right cheek, which was four by 5.5 centimeters. And then on the outer right thigh, there was an indentation that was 25 centimeters by 14 centimeters. He also died from hypothermia and he was found in an embrace with Zolorayoff. Probably trying to stay warm. Yeah, that would make sense. And interestingly, his clothes also were found to have traces of radioactivity. Hmm. Also on May 5th, Semyon Zolariov was found and he was fully dressed and he was wearing Dubonina's faux fur jacket and hat. He too had empty eye sockets. The existing hair cover slides when touched. That's what the autopsy said. I don't know if that meant he was wearing a toupee or was like his scalp no longer attached properly. So like they had parts of the autopsy that was like skin slides, like in that kind of thing. But they never talked about anyone's hair cover sliding. Like they didn't use the word hair cover. They were like body had six centimeter black curly hair. I like that they do it in that voice. Yeah, that's that's an autopsy voice. Okay, And it was three fingers long. Like makes sense. They didn't they didn't measure that that way, but they should have just committed to fingers if that's how they're measuring. Disgusting. I'm still mad. Can't let it go. I will say when I did look at these postmortem pictures, his is the most haunting picture there is. Because when they found them too, like these people were in a ravine. There was like a nearby stream from what I understand. And so like when you're saying some like skin slips and things like that. I think that's pretty common for when you're in water a very long time after you die. But with with his picture, they, they're almost like, f- I want to say frozen is the best term I can say is like they're in these odd positions when they were found. And then as they like 
took them back inside and the bodies warmed up, they look horrific. Rigor mortis had set in. So like they were where they were going to be. Right, right. Well, no, they're like there's like layers of ice, especially on the first round of people. They're like icy people. I'm looking at I'm looking at the photos now. That's why I'm like making this horrific face. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to make her look at some of them now. Look at like Rustums. Oh, yeah. He's covered in snow. Uh Uh-huh. He's fully buried. He's literally frozen. They have to like dig him out of the snow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because they're so frozen, they almost look like statues that are covered in snow. And I will say too, like, can you imagine like the trauma that like these rescuers like for digging people out of snow? They thought they were looking, they were going to find missing people. I don't think they were going to find this. Right. Well, that last one. So Semyon, if you look at that last picture and we're not going to post these, but if you want to find them, it's on their website, yachtlovepass.com. His is, I think, the, the most haunting one and it's the last one on the page of pictures. But Like I said, he too had eyeballs missing, eye sockets are gaping. His nose was flattened at the base with the nostrils being compressed. It also notes his various tattoos and that he had rib fractures. And he died of hypothermia and internal bleeding from multiple rib fractures. The saddest part of his is he was found holding a pen and paper, but he never got a chance to write anything down. As we continue, we're going to talk about some strange facts, some theories. We're going to touch on the original investigation, when the case was made public, and then what happened when they reopened the investigation. So some strange facts. As Amanda mentioned earlier, they all had like a brick colored to kind of purple discoloration on their hands and feet. Also, some of the hikers' belongings were radioactively contaminated, but not all of them. And what was was just a sweater and a pair of pants, which makes me wonder if that was actually one person's outfit. Maybe. Because, like, they were wearing each other's clothes. So, like, it could have been that it was Zolaretov's sweater that Ablamia was wearing. Possibly. So, also, during that same time period, there was a burning object reported kind of flying through the sky during that time. Yes. Yeah, we read like a bunch of the interviews with the witnesses from the case file. And they're they're a little bit repetitive and like talking about like we saw a burning light flying through the sky. But two of them that I thought were interesting were so the first one was one of the man was a Manzi woman from the indigenous population that was local to there. And she described what she saw as a bright burning object in the sky that was wider in the front and narrow in the back. And it had sparks flying off the tail of it. Right. And this wasn't the night that they disappeared. This is just around that same time. Yeah. Yeah. Also, there was Georgi Ivanovich. And he said that at about six or seven in the morning, his wife came to him and said, look at some kind of ball flying and turning. And so he went on his porch and he saw a, quote, luminous ball. And he said that it looked like it was the size of the sun or moon. And it was receding into the distance to the north. He said it looked like a bright sun in the fog. So that's how big it was. And it was moving in a straight line away from him. He said the light from the ball was going between green and red. It was obviously Santa. And at that same time, it had a white halo that was constantly preserved. He described it as a moving ball of color in a white shell. Interesting. And then it moved very quickly. And that the whole like his whole sighting of it was just a few moments and that there wasn't any noise. He thinks it flew, quote, from us at a great distance. And that's why everyone believes it might have been aliens. Yeah. Yeah. And I was not able to see if this was ever identified what it ended up being. I didn't see anything either. So also Chernobyl, which was a nuclear power plant, their deputy engineer also had the same last name as the outlaw. And some people thought that was an unsettling 
coincidence. And then another strange fact was that there was a makeshift morgue set up in the nearest town of Evedale. And you would think that like it's a morgue. The people inside are dead. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Autopsies will occur. Like it's a small town. Probably nobody's going to mess with it. Right. And if there was going to be like some type of security, you would think it would be like local police. But instead it was the KGB. Weird. And nobody was allowed in, which is very, very strange to me. And we're, that'll kind of like play into some of the theories that we'll eventually get to as well. Right. What also seemed weird about like their autopsies just being so secretive is why were they checking for radioactivity unless they knew to check for it? I don't think that that's a standard practice. No. And, and I don't know if you would necessarily like, I, do I know anything about like radioactivity and what it does to the human body? Not really. But I would imagine that you wouldn't notice right away, would you? Unless something was highly radioactive. Yeah. I don't know what would cause them to even look. Yeah. Let's touch on the investigation just a tad. The investigation checked the tent and made sure it was properly put up, which it was. The Mansi people were interrogated for weeks. Remember, they were they were living in the area. And some say they were even tortured to try to get some of the information from them because they thought that they might have done it. Yeah. It doesn't seem like there's any reason to think that, though. No, no. They were pretty peaceful for the most part. So the case file, when they closed it, they archived it as secret, which again, drove people nuts. They wanted to know what happened. There were no articles published around the incident, but a book with a happy ending was written, which has covered this up all over it. And in the book, all but one of the skiers survive. So could you imagine being one of the relatives of this family and no one's covering it, no one cares, and then they come out with this kind of like fairy tale of what happens? I would be steaming mad. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's just disrespectful. In a 1990 newspaper article, they reported a UFO sighting near the Atlov Pass. And in response, a town leader who was a former Communist Party leader wrote a response detailing what happened to the skiers. The leader noted that there were holes in the tent and it would have been from debris that fell from a rocket test. So he kind of made his own theory there. I found it interesting that like even members of the government who were like complicit in the cover up had their own theories. They were like, wasn't this. <laughs> nope. Rocket test for sure. A head investigator named Lev Ivanov, he was quoted as saying that the students were killed by a UFO. A few weeks after he was quoted, he wrote his own article saying that the students' injuries were from, quote, heat rays or strong enough energy that was completely unknown to us. It was suggested that the lead investigator was pressured into closing the case, and he may have been severely punished if it wasn't closed or archived immediately. Yeah, I think they were still sending people to the gulags at that point, too. So Right. So he just did what he was told, and then that's also why it sparked a lot of weird things. That also made me think of, too, is that so autopsies, doctors are performing these under the protection or pressure of the KGB. If the lead investigator could be pressured into closing the case, then I certainly think that the people who were writing the autopsies could have also been pressured. Who's to say they were even like doctors doing it, though, like with their units of measurement and other weird things? I sometimes wonder because I know that that does happen where it's not even a medical professional doing it. No, for these, I really do think they were done by a medical professional because they were like, the weight of the liver is this. This is good. And then you like went through each organ and like what it looked like and whether it was healthy and whether it wasn't like described it. So it was like an intense amount of medical knowledge 
to like describe it and also like the way they described like where the head wounds were like you or me would be like back of the head he got stabbed by a stick or something right like versus <laughs> there was a puncture wound in the mastoid process it seemed like with the exception of the finger measurement it seemed relatively like medically based that just felt like sexism to me sexist doctors so the case was reopened in 2019 and i think partially because this was so famous people were talking about it they wanted to know and so the Russian prosecutor general who reopened the case ruled out criminal explanations immediately. And they focused only on natural causes, specifically an avalanche, a snow slab, or a hurricane. And many people filed complaints asking the investigator to open a criminal case because some of the facts just didn't line up, especially when you're thinking mm-hmm. missing eyes and tongue. And so the families of the skiers were also adamant that these were not naturally occurring deaths. Mainly, and one of the reasons they said that was because the USSR wouldn't have taken the organs or pieces of bone to test if it was just an avalanche, right? Like, why would they test that? And then also, an avalanche wouldn't remove the eyes and a tongue. So this year in July, the group was determined to have died as a result of an avalanche. And that what had happened was they were all in the tent and they fled the tent after an avalanche, which is why they cut their way through. And that once they got out, they couldn't see because there was so much snow and it was just generally hard to see. And that the fractures were caused by the snow. And see, I think that that is 1000% wrong. Me too. Because when we talked about the the tent only having a couple feet of snow on it, an avalanche would have a substantial amount more. And then also they were experienced, right? Yeah. I don't know what to do in an avalanche. I would just die. But they should have been running alongside the mountain, I guess. So there's no reason that they would have run down the mountain. I guess that's a big no-no to the people that know what they're doing. Also, for anybody who understands gravity. (laughs) Well, that too. That too. It would be, that would explain why one person, at least one person tried to climb a tree. Because, I don't know, are trees avalanche proof? I doubt it. So let's dip into some of the theories. The first theory is called the War Echo Theory. And this, and for this theory, folks say the Ditloff group was killed by Semyon's war enemies that were released from prison in 1953. And so one of the things that supports this theory is that there was a fabric band with saber knots at the end, which witnesses reported as being near the bodies. And when they say witnesses, they mean people who were part of the rescue party. Right, right. And so... Some say that that saber band with the knots on it was something that Semyon was wearing underneath of his clothing so that he could transport something valuable with him. Ooh. And that's why I brought up our white pocket earlier, because I was like, ah. But also, Semyon had a, like a significant amount of money with him. One of the things that I saw that was, it was just peculiar to me was they sent Semyon's belongings to his mother. And this is what he had on him. He had 700 rubles. 25 state loan bonds. So three were worth 10 rubles. Three were worth 200 rubles. And he also had a diploma with him. He was very proud of his diploma. Do you carry it on an expedition, though? That made me think that he was like, again, like leaving and going to somewhere. Like maybe he wasn't going to do this whole expedition with them. Like maybe he was going to start with them and then leave. Right. I was really curious as to like how much money he was carrying on him because it was just suspicious. Like it made sense that they would have money for emergencies. Like if someone got sick or like they needed help and they needed to pay someone to like give them food or a ride or something. Well, and they went 
they went through a couple little towns too during their journey. They'd stop at a town and like get things that they needed, hang out, and then go back. Yeah, they also had like a in the beginning of their trip, they like had a storage shed that they created to put like extra supplies in. So it wasn't strange that they were carrying money. But so in total, he was carrying 700 rubles and then like about 630 rubles in bonds. For the rubles himself, I was like, let me figure out how much that would be in today's money to kind of like get a feel for how much that is. So I thought I was just going to like put a number in and then it would tell me a today number. That's not what happened. In 1959, the currency there was the Soviet ruble, which in 1998 became the Russian ruble. And normally when you see like old money, $200, it's now $3 million. It's insane. It's like a jump, right? That's a pretty big jump. No, that's not real. But you know what I'm saying. Like, it's more. It's more money. And so... (laughs) The Soviet ruble became old Russian ruble, right? And so the old Russian ruble, 700 of them, which is what he was carrying, is 0.70 of Russian rubles. So it went down drastically. Yeah. And then I was trying to figure out like what that would be with inflation. And so I rounded to one because the calculator wouldn't let you put 0.7. And so one ruble, the inflation from 1993 to 2020 meant it would be 1,526 rubles, which in the U.S. dollar is $276. So it wasn't a lot of money at all. Not a lot. Yeah. Just an interesting note. So him, his 200 bucks and his high school diploma are on the move. But so that was one of the one of the theories was that he was transporting something of value. But there was no unique valuable found that would support that theory. But also some might say that because there wasn't anything found that supports the theory. (laughs) They're, They're really trying for that one. They're really trying. So like we said before, relatively close to where they were, there was a network of prison camps. They had around 30,000 inmates that processed timber, labored in factories, and built roads. So their camps were considered one of the most violent and awful in the Gulag system. Folks didn't try to escape, though, because then they would be stuck in this terrible, severe, freezing cold weather. But there were missing windows and roofs in the structures. So some people suspect that some of these insane criminals might have come down and murdered them and then left them in various places. But I think that that also was a pretty big stretch of a theory, because what would be their reasoning if nothing was missing? I could see if they were like robbed of their warm clothes. Yeah. Or robbed of their stove or, you know, something that would help someone. But they had everything laying there. So I think that's completely crazy talk. Yeah, I feel I I agree with you. For that to be a compelling theory for me, they would have needed to be missing the money they were carrying, some of the core gear like the tent or the little stove thing or food, all that kind of stuff. So another one of the theories was that they were victims of like fantastical weapons like vacuum bombs or that there had been nuclear missile testing that they had either seen or had that had been used against them. Mm-hmm. And some people think that that light in the sky could have been something like a big bomb or a nuclear missile on top of, you know, aliens. Yeah. Other theories go into like spy mode. They want a fantastic spy movie made out of this. So (laughs) they believe it was an attack of spies who landed from a warplane. Or one of the members was a secret agent who was delivering information on Soviet nuclear weaponry. And the party who they were working for killed them and the rest of the hiking team. Again, explains the pocket. (laughs) Very specific. (laughs) I mean, I would think something maybe if something was in that pocket that was crazy. But man, they took it out of the pocket. We'll never know. But maybe that's where the radioactive material was. Perhaps. Perhaps that was. 
gosh. So there was also the crime theory, which this is my favorite because it's so specific. So some suggest that attackers got the hikers out of the tent and forced them away. And then the hikers tried to counterattack, but they were outmatched and beaten severely with a combat wrestling style of fighting. Let us sink in for a moment. Of course. Snow wrestlers. Who would take the energy to write that and put that on the internet? Snow wrestlers. But we're not done. When some didn't die of hypothermia, the attackers came back and killed the rest. And folks say that, like, the injuries were typical of wrestling injuries. What? Do you rip tongues out in wrestling? Well, yeah, clearly. (laughs) Clearly when you're hardcore wrestling. Oh, for sure. For sure. They also noted that there were, like, 90% of the injuries from the left side of the body. And this suggests right-handed attackers. Or wind, man. Like, they could have just fallen down because of the wind was really bad. (laughs) I'm surprised you said that was your favorite one. I thought the next one was your favorite one, that it might have been a Yeti encounter. And I will say there is one weird photo that it's kind of blurry and it looks like this like big, I don't know. It looks like a Sasquatch. Yeah, it looks like this big person or thing standing amongst some trees. And you can find that on their website as well. I don't know what it is. I I just don't believe that it was a Yeti. I also don't believe it was a Yeti. We have an episode coming up where we will talk about Yetis specifically. And I just, this doesn't, this doesn't match the Yeti vibe that I've learned about. They don't like rip tongues out, pull people's eyes out, burn them. I mean, like, how did they get a burn from a Yeti? I don't know. Maybe it was a fire Yeti. Fire Yeti. (laughs) Can that be our mascot? Fire Yeti? Fire Yeti. That lives in the snow. Yeah, it's a fire snow at Yeti. And it has hot footprints so that it makes footprints that melt and freeze in the snow. Uh, I imagine a fire Yeti looks like the Philly mascot that everybody is trolling Republicans with. (laughs) I am going to draw a fire Yeti now. Well, thank you. That's all I wanted out of this episode. (laughs) A fire Yeti. But there are some questionable photos. Also, one that I probably should have brought up with the UFO theory. There is a picture of some lights that are super blurry, too. And some speculate that that was like their last photo taken and they were trying to tell people what happened to them. I think that she just took or someone took a picture accidentally. Didn't mean to. So another theory was that the USSR was testing secret weapons and that they killed the hikers to hide the consequences of those weapons. There's some theories, too, that say this, and they say, like, they killed them, took them with them, and then came back and put them in various places to confuse people. Yeah, well, success. They did it right. And then, so remember their 10th person, Yuri Yurden, he said that he thought his friends, quote, saw something they shouldn't have seen and then were forced to make a confusing scene. And he stood on his deathbed. But why would he say that unless he too witnessed something weird? Well, see, here's my thing. The only one of the reasons why I think there's some veracity to that is because he was dying when he said it. And like, it would not have been a wise, self-preserving statement to make that if he planned on living a long time. So there is a Ditloff Memorial Fund and researcher and head of the Ditloff Memorial Fund is a man named Yuri Kuncevic. And so when he was a kid, he attended the funerals of the hikers and he has a really interesting theory. So he thinks that the students were asked to take photos of a secret missile test by a Western agent named Mm. the Mole. And that the students were then killed by drunken convicts who had been guarding the pass from the gulag. That's how that sounds to me. And then after the convicts had killed them, they moved their tent and their bodies a mile and a half away from them to an impractical place. And that this was done by a mop up team of soldiers and that they had several helicopters. The details of that I find alarming, but also so specific, like, what do you know, Kuncevic? Yeah. 
Yeah. Also, there's an American researcher named Donny Icar. And so his theory is also shared with some Russian scientists. And they think that there was a common vortex. And so what this is, is it's when there's severe winds blowing over the mountains and they create whirlwinds and they create a low frequency sound. It's inaudible, but it can cause nausea and intense psychological discomfort. And so basically this mixed with the dark, they could have been really, really freaked out and just kind of done really erratic things. And this reminds me of what we talked about in our ghost episode about infrasound. Yeah. Yeah, it that is one of the theories that caught my attention for a while where I'm like, I guess it really couldn't be 1000% out of the question. I mean, it makes more sense to me than the snow fire yeti or the avalanche. <laughs> there is an author named Oleg Arkhipovas, and he wrote three books about Dyatlov Pass. He suggests that the original investigator was told to wrap up the case, so he did. If he hadn't done what he was told, he might have ended up in one of the prison camps. And the investigator afterwards was sent to the Republic of Kazakhstan. He only began speaking about it when the USSR started to fall apart. So a couple things that he also mentioned is there was a big barrel of alcohol that was delivered to the autopsies. So like while they were performing them. For, for drinking? No, he believes that the investigators used it to protect themselves from radiation. And forensic teams were told to wipe down their naked bodies with alcohol. What a vibe. It's so weird. And I, I wonder if, you know, like this guy who wrote these books, where did he get these ideas? Who told him this? I think when you when someone doesn't have the full story and there's holes, our brains fill them in. And so I think that's a lot of what we're seeing is people filling in the holes from their own perspective and their own lived experience. And so depending on who you are, what you've read, what you've heard, your brain's going to fill in the holes differently. And I find just some people's plugs fascinating, like this one. (laughs) Right. Well, he also talks about how there was animals found in the area that were dead and people were banned from using the water wells immediately after. Shady. For sure shady. And he suggests that there might have been a rocket explosion or that they were poisoned with rocket fuel. And that's why they cut their way out of the tent is like they were inhaling the fumes and trying to get away from it. But again, from what I understand that night, it was, you know, either windy or a snowstorm or something was happening to where I feel like those vapors wouldn't stay in their little area long. Yeah, but okay, so think about it this way, right? So if this were the case, I kind of like the rocket fuel theory because they're in their tent, they smell the fuel, they can't breathe, they cut their way out, scoot on out, and they just leave as soon as possible because they can't breathe. So they're not grabbing anything. That would explain why they didn't grab anything. They run out breathing, right? Trying to catch their breath. Some of them fall on the snow and ice and they start a fire to try to like get warm. And maybe they can't see the tent. Maybe it's too late. Like it's like very dark out and they can't see it or and that's where they start the fire and climb the tree. Or maybe there is a snowstorm or weather and it's just like they can't for whatever reason, they can't see the tent and can't get back to it. And that's why folks are crawling. Interesting. Is that your theory that you'd go with the most? I have no theory that I would go with the most. I'm just I'm a real big question mark on this one because I trust nothing. I don't trust the autopsies. (laughs) I don't trust anything. I don't trust any information that was gathered about the case because it was gathered by people who had a vested interest in staying alive. That's true. Well, there's two more that I think are pretty. One, I'll just say because I think it's interesting. And then two is my theory that I think happened. Yeah. And by my theory, I mean (laughs) the one that I agree with the most. Oh, you're not like a scholar who's been researching for this this for decades. Also, folks, just we didn't mention this at the top, but we meant to, but we didn't. Uh, We're not Russian. We've done our best to pronounce names. But if we've messed up, please know that we've really tried our best. We did. 
<laughs> so there are legends in that area that the Mansies would talk about. And I guess in ancient times, the blood of nine Mansies were shed on this mountain. And even a pilot that met with, with the students before they went on this excursion said that the number nine is unlucky. You know, like it's it's cursed in a sense. And he told them the legend of the mountain and what its name deciphered in Mansi language meant, which is like dead mountain. But I believe the Mansi's said dead mountain, not because because of the legend, but because it was like dead as far as vegetation goes. I also saw where it doesn't mean dead mountain. It means like mountain of swirling winds or something similar to that. Yeah. That that was just like a sensationalized kind of well i think it just goes along with the legend because yeah. the nine mansies had died so it's like to get the Ooh. legend yeah spookier <laughs> but anyways he told them about or he told them the legend of the nine dead mansies along the slope of the mountain as well and they did not believe in this theory at all Fair. the students <laughs> and i guess something that they mentioned to him was they weren't motivated by the story because there were nine mansi residents and don't worry because there's 10 of them but then remember one of them left very shortly after this and there were nine of them so maybe just going in in groups of nine around this mountain is cursed and maybe that's why i saw that there were some people that said that there were like plane crashes and other things where a group of nine people died but i couldn't find any reputable sources for those crashes things i think it might be just going along with the story but it is still kind of weird that that's like a local legend for sure Okay, so here's the one that I probably agree with the most, only because there's the most information about this theory. It's the theory of catabatic wind. And that is a wind that carries high density air from a higher elevation down a slope under the force of gravity. So where this theory comes from is in January of 2019, on the 60th anniversary of this incident, two Swedish men, Richard Holmgren and Andreas Lichgren, along with two local guides, actually recreated where the Dyatlov hikers would have gone. They followed the exact same trail, even took some of the same pictures of where they were, which I thought was fascinating, like how they did that and actually recreated every day. And while there's a couple different reasons why he thought this. Right when they finished their trip, I guess within a couple days, maybe even the day after, their area or the area around Dyatlov Pass had a crazy amount of wind and the temperature dropped significantly. And it reminded him of a story that also happened in Sweden in February of 1978. And it's very, very similar to what happened to Dyatlov. There was a group of hikers that were set across a mountain range in central Sweden, and eight out of nine of them died in similar circumstances of what happened in Russia. They abandoned their camp. They died of exposure. Their bodies had lacerations and, you know, minor cuts. They had seven men and two women. And it happened around the same time of year with similar conditions. That's too close to me. That's way too close. It's very, very strange. Now, the difference, though, is that one had survived from the Sweden incident. The survivor in Sweden was in very rough shape. He was sedated and it was like weeks before he could actually talk about what happened. But what he told them is that they made it to their camp and then the weather conditions rapidly changed and that the wind speeds increased and the temperatures fell dramatically. So they were just trying to make like a fast shelter to protect them from the weather. And because of like their journey, they were already like super exhausted that day. And slowly they were, you know, running out of energy. And so 
six of them managed to make it into a trench while three of them were left above for dead. One of them being the survivor, though. Hmm. And what the people in the trench were trying to do is they were trying to make a cover to the trench and anything they were trying to use to make the cover was blowing away. And so what they were trying to do is like dig, like to dig more into the trench and their hands were frozen and they were just bleeding everywhere trying to dig. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. And so one by one, I guess they were even trying to get to their clothing and their equipment and stuff. But with their hands being in the state that they were, I'm guessing they just couldn't get into their bags. But one by one, they all died of hypothermia. So I believe the one that survived kept going, like he kept moving at all times. He never stopped. Smart. And I want to say that's why he might have survived. So looking at what happened in Sweden and knowing that the weather dramatically changed after the two Swedish men that recreated the, the whole thing, they knew that the weather had changed dramatically. So they were like, huh, that sounds familiar. Maybe it's us. And he made like a website about it. And I want to say he's actually doing a documentary about his journey and, you know, his theory. But what he thinks happened is they set up camp. The crazy wind started. The temperature dropped quite a bit. And maybe their tent started to, you know, either break or possibly start to fly away like pieces of it could have. And so what they did is they quickly cut out of it so that they could bury it with snow to keep it down. So remember, they're in a hurry. They were either, you know, getting ready for bed, changing or but they do that and then they realize, oh, shoot, we, we can't just like get back in the tent. It's still really bad. Let's go for some coverage near the trees. And then what might have happened, and again, this is just the theory, is they were trying to make the fire and they might have split up. So some went into the ravine, kind of like the trench, to make cover while some made a fire. And he believes that the people near the fire might have died first mm. because they weren't moving as much. Yeah. Or maybe they couldn't keep the fire going and they, you know, got too cold too fast. And then the people in the ravine tried to make like snow shelters. And his theory as to why they had so many cuts is because the wind was picking up small objects. So stones, branches, things like that. Ice, maybe. Mm. And as it was hitting them, it was cutting them. And then the people that were in the ravine trying to make the snow shelter, he believes that one of the snow shelters might have collapsed. Yeah. Snow is heavy. Snow is crushing. It could have crushed a lot of them. And that would make up for like the, the rib injuries and and even the head injuries. Right. Yeah, for sure. So he's thinking a couple of them. So the ones that were found near the tent might have either gotten out of their snow shelter to try to get back to the tent. Or I did see in some of the comments from other people that looked at their site that possibly they saw that their friends got stuck in the other snow shelter that had fallen. And maybe they were trying to get back to their tent to get shovels, you know, to help them out or something. And then slowly, one by one, they might have died on their way back to the tent, whether they couldn't find it right away or, you know, it was just far too cold. We don't know. But I think that this theory hits on most of the things. It still doesn't explain for like the missing eyes and tongues and it doesn't, or and tongue, I should say. And it doesn't account for the clothing, what was found on their clothing. Yeah. But also some of them worked in nuclear. So maybe it was just from work. Yeah. I also wonder, could they have like thrifted it? Like maybe it was clothes that they like got, got from someplace else, you know? I mean, it's all, I guess it's a possibility, but my guess is Alexander worked or he was studying nuclear physics. Yeah. So I don't know if maybe there was a lab or something like that that he might have been studying in and maybe he could have like contracted some things onto his clothing. And then remember, they were all like wearing each other's clothes too. Well, and also 
they thought that Alexander was working at a secret institute in Moscow and who knows what was happening in that institute. Right, right. So I just liked that theory because one, it's a pretty educated theory as I mean, he went physically went and tried to figure out what happened and that there's something that happened super similar where one person survived and we're able to tell what happened to them. And it just checks off too many boxes for me to not be considered. I think of all the theories, that is the most convincing. I certainly don't believe it's a Yeti. An avalanche is frankly too simple for me. Okay. But again, I trust no facts here because <laughs> folks had a vested interest in this being a quick thing. And so like, mm-hmm. if there was like, I don't know, Yeti bite marks, they weren't going to include it in the autopsy or if there were burns that were consistent with a secret weapon of some sort or you know behavior or if there was like wounds or injuries or something of that nature that had to do with the clothing being radioactive right because like you're telling me that people were wearing radioactive clothing no problem but the people doing the autopsies on them have to douse their body in alcohol to protect themselves right like right if that's true but like the radioactivity i mean i don't know strange it's all strange and we don't know we would love to know what you think as always so thanks for listening see you next week fire yeti thanks for listening for more information on our sources please visit our website truecreeps.com if you'd like to follow us on social media you can follow us on instagram at truecreepspod on facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod and on twitter at truecreeps We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps.